0: Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 20. Children, at this time, y'all can be dismissed to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Y'all hungry today? Hope so. Jeremiah 15, 16 tells us, the prophet says, When your words came, I ate them for they were my joy and my heart's delight. Week after week, we feast upon the, the milk and the meat of the word, as the New Testament calls it. So I hope you are hungry. But also in the book of Psalms, uh, the word is likened to honey, so it's very sweet and delectable. Luke chapter 20. Excited today? We've got a new chapter going on. Uh, five to go. So I'm excited for that. Luke 20, verses 1 to 26. If you are able one more time to honor God's word, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of his word. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 26. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask us, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it is from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you know, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, They became silent. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. One question I have had several times when I read the Bible, or read the Gospels in particular, is this. I wonder if you've ever thought it. Have you ever wondered what happened to Jesus in the early part of his life? Because when you read the Gospels, there are only two occasions that are recorded of his early life it's the Christmas narrative, when he was born, when he first came into the world. Well, actually, I guess kind of two, or maybe three, depending upon how you count it. It's the Christmas narrative, him actually being born in the stable, but then also the, the visit of the Magi, if you remember that, the, the wise men. That actually happened about two-ish years after Jesus was born, believe it or not. So that, that could be considered a, a third separate encounter. But regardless, when Jesus was born, his arrival, his entry, when Jesus was at the temple when he was about 12 years old, teaching and, and talking with all the, the religious leaders there, And then after that, it's just dead silence. And in Luke chapter 3, we find that Jesus started his public ministry when he was about 30 years old. So what happened in between, that huge in-between time? Well, I'm here to tell you today, I don't know. I just simply don't know. The Bible doesn't specify. But you have to wonder, then what's the purpose of the Gospels? Why don't we have a fuller picture of of Jesus' life, you know, his teenage years, his childhood, his mid-twenties, what happened? Why don't we have that information? Well, you have to keep in mind what the purpose of the Gospels is. It's not a modern-day biography that chronicles every big aspect of our lives that we typically think of, but rather the Gospels are, are little snapshots. It's a collection of primary accounts that reveal to us who Jesus is. In the Gospel of John, we read that John records, I was not able to record everything that Jesus ever did. If I were to have done that, then all the books in the world couldn't contain all the miracles, all the beauty, all the love that he displayed. So basically, I recorded just a little bit so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, we have the Gospels so that you and I can answer the question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And everything that's recorded, all the prayers, all the teachings, all the parables, all the miracles, it reveals to us something of who Jesus is. It reveals to us his power, his love, his compassion, his purpose, his divinity. And today, as we look at Luke chapter 20, what we see is this passage revealing to us the authority of the king. If you were with us the past few weeks, we looked at Chapter 9, 19, walk through it, and we saw in verse 28 that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He came in peace to offer peace to people. So we came and saw Jesus is the king who's come to bring us peace. We also saw that he is humble, as he rode on a donkey. He's also praiseworthy. He deserves our praise. But then as we fast forward now to chapter 20, what we see is and what we're going to unpack is the authority of this king. What is the authority of the king like? How is the authority of the king revealed? And and for you and I today, how do we respond to his authority? How do you and I submit to his authority over us? So as we wrestle through that big question, um, we're going to look at three kind of big components. And here it is. We're going to look at authority that was questioned. Number two, authority that was exercised. And then finally, authority that is explained. So firstly, an authority that is questioned. This is from verses 1 to verse 8. Now take note of the setting of what, where Jesus is and what he's doing. This is one week before Jesus' crucifixion. Within that week. And, within, and before Jesus' death, what does he spend his time doing? What does he consider most important that he spends his time, devotes his time to? Look at the text, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. This is a reminder for you and I that what Jesus considered of utmost importance, so much so that the last week of his life, he dedicated to teaching, to preaching, and especially to investing into his disciples, preparing them for what was to come. He spent time teaching and preaching the truth, the good news. This was central to his ministry. Whereas some people might, think, no, Jesus came to heal people, to perform lots of miracles. He absolutely did do that. But if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus was healing many people. And some people in the town he was at, I can turn there really quick, I believe he was in, oh, he was in Capernaum, in around Galilee area. So Jesus was healing many people. And Many people kept talking to him. Hey, hey, Jesus, could you just stay a little longer? I've got some family, some relatives who are a little ways away. They might be traveling. And I would love for you to heal them, to touch them, to bless them. And Jesus said, I must go and proclaim the good news to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. I must go and proclaim the good news. So this is what Jesus devotes his life to, even the very last week of his life before the crucifixion. So notice also, Jesus is in the temple courts, right in the heart, the hub of Jewish life. And since he's there, the religious elite are only a stone's throw away, and they're undoubtedly listening to every word that he's saying, hoping, as we'll see as we walk through the text, to catch him, to say something that will get him in trouble with the supreme authority, in their mind, over Jesus, the government. So they come up to Jesus, look at the text, they, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now it's clear to you and I that this is not a genuine question. If I were to ask you, why are you using a fork and a knife to eat pizza? That's not a genuine question. Right? There's disdain right, that I communicate you should be using your hands. It's an implication there. But it's so much more so in this scenario. It's not a genuine question. Jesus Where does your authority come from? But rather, they're flagrantly revealing their disdain, their animosity towards Jesus. In other words, in their minds, they are thinking, Jesus, you should not be subverting our authority by what you are saying. Now, Jesus doesn't directly answer them, as you see in verse 3. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin. And Matthew and Mark, the, the other two Gospels that record this account, there's another verse there that's included, another little phrase that helps explain it. So Jesus says to the, to the religious leaders, if you answer this question, I will answer you. So first, here's this one for you. This was a, a common way that uh, the teachers, the, the, they would often teach their followers. This going back and forth Uh, responding to questions with questions. So Jesus says, all right, answer this question, I'll answer yours. Tell me, John's baptism. In other words, the ministry of John. His preaching, his teaching, what he was actually doing, baptizing people in the water. Was it from heaven or is it from human origin? Was it from God? Was it divinely blessed and commissioned by the Lord? Or is he just a man? Was he just spreading his own ideas, his own Thoughts. In other words, Jesus is asking them about the authority of John the Baptist. And by implication and by connection, he's tying himself to John the Baptist. Because as you recall, when Jesus was baptized by him, that's when the heavens opened up and there was a dove that descended down, and that's when the, everyone heard that audible voice This is my son whom I loved, in him I am well pleased. So it, it, that was a big type of commissioning in Jesus' own ministry where he um, publicly received a lot of this love and authority from the Father. So Jesus is tying himself to this ministry and they're saying, Jesus is asking, what do you think of John's ministry? Because what you think of John will in large part depend and determine what you think of me. But see how they respond and what they deliberate. Verse 5, they discussed among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Right there, they do not care about the truth. They have no concern, no genuine concern for the truth there. Because do you see that in what they are talking about amongst themselves? They don't ask one another, you know, who was really John? Who is the true identity of John? What was his ministry? Where did it really come from? No, they said, no, if we say it was from heaven, if we say it was from God, then that means we are in the wrong and we failed to respond. But if we say conversely that he was just a man, it wasn't any, there wasn't anything special about him, well then all the people around us, they're going to stone us. They're going to, it says it right there in the text, all the people will stone us because they have persuaded, they are so convinced that John was a prophet of God. And how many times do you and I do this today? When it comes to any issue in life, I think a big one today's world is the issue of sexuality. How many times when it comes to the issue of sexuality, whether it be lust, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, whatever it might be, when it comes to any of those issues, we think, you know what, Lord, if I say what's true, if I say what you say in your word, well, then that means I'm going to be in the wrong. And I'm going to be corrected. I haven't lived up to it. I must submit myself to that authority. But if I say the opposite, if I say, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's okay, well then all the people will be against me, right? So we, we find ourselves in this dilemma sometimes. We're pers- we don't want to be corrected by God. but We also don't want to be persecuted by the crowd. So instead of saying anything, we just say, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And that's what they say. We don't know. We don't know where it was from. But Jesus said right there in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing things. So class, for you today, were the religious leaders here, were they concerned, were they genuinely interested in the authority of Jesus and where it was from? No, they were not. The issue in this text, So then why is this recorded? Why is this here for us? The issue is not where is the source of authority because we saw that clearly in chapter 19. Jesus is the king, period. He is the king. Chapter 20, these first few verses, verses 1 to 8, it's for you and I to consider, are we humble when we approach the king? Are we humble? Are we gentle? Are we responsive to his authority over us? That's the key concern. Because today, either either literally today or in life in general, if you were ever concerned, genuinely concerned about the authority issue of Jesus, and you ask, you know, Jesus, are you the true God? That's a very genuine, good question to ask. There's tons of gods, tons of religions, tons of belief systems. Jesus, as revealed in the Bible, are you the true God? Or a slight variant on that might be, God, is the Bible faithful? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Is it truthful? Can I trust it? Is it for? Is it relevant for today? If you ask those authority questions of God, in humility, he will answer you. He will guide you into the truth. But if, on the opposite, if you approach this whole God, Christianity, the Bible topic with arrogance, with haughtiness, with pride, well then, verse 8. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. As one commentator said in this scenario, Jesus will not declare what they are unwilling to hear. Jesus will not declare what they are unwilling to hear. And for you today, when you approach God, when you approach Jesus, when you approach the Bible, do you do so humbly with this attitude that, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to submit to you. Is that your attitude? Every single day of your lives. We're called to humbly hear him. Secondly, we see authority that is exercised. This is from verses 9 to 19. So here we find another parable. And parables are, are simply, they're vivid illustrations, vivid stories that communicate a powerful truth. In every parable that Jesus speaks, you cannot, and just words of wisdom and warning, you cannot press every detail too hard. There's not an explicit, specific one-to-one correlation with everything Jesus says with something in the real world. But there are real correlations between the characters and reality. So let's walk through this parable and see what we find. So, so here's another one. So class, for you today, as you look at it, verse 9. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Class, who is the one who planted the vineyard? Who? God. More specific, the Father. Very good. It's the Father, okay? He is the vineyard owner. And um, when you actually look at it, the vineyard, well, who is the vineyard? See if you know that one. Who is the vineyard? What is the vineyard? See Anybody got a guess? What's the vineyard? Okay, it's okay. In Isaiah 5, verse 7, that's the answer. It's explicit. Isaiah 5, verse 7, the the Word of God says this, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines He delighted in. So when you rewind back to the Old Testament, this, this makes sense. The Father is the one who created the vineyard. He's the one who planted it. He's the one who started it. He's the one who created it. He's the one who called Abraham initially out from the land of Ur to himself. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. You're going to have many descendants. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and who was Israel. Israel had tw- many sons, and that became the whole nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. God created the vineyard. The Father created the vineyard. He invests in the vineyard. All right, so class... Who are the farmers? Verse 9. Who are the farmers? Who are the tenants who are working the field? Anybody know this one? The religious leaders? Bingo. Yeah, contextually speaking, it is the religious elite. It's the priests, the teachers of the law. And before you kind of get angry at that, right? because when we read the New Testament, we usually think, when we read those terms, Pharisee, religious leader, teachers of the law, priests, high priests, chief priests, we have negative thoughts about them. But please remember the important necessary work that God had called these men to. Because these people were called to shepherd the flock. They were called to provide for the flock, to feed the flock the word of God, to care and cultivate the farm, to care and cultivate the vineyard, to tend to the people. A very weighty responsibility and that's what he commissioned them to do back then, and even in the day that Jesus is speaking. So that's who the farmers are, the tenants. It's the religious leaders. So the next, who are the servants? Because it's, you, know, you see the text, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Who are the servants? The prophets, bingo. It's the prophets of old, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hezekiah, it's, well, Hezekiah was a king, forgive me, but it's all the prophets that God sent. And the prophets, what did they do? They called the people, hey, repent of your sin. Come to the Lord. Give an account of yourself to the Lord. Come to him in repentance. Be reconciled to him. Be made right with the Father. But sadly, the too often occasion in the Bible, both Old Testament and New, is there was resistance against the prophets amongst the people, amongst the religious leaders who who were leading the way, because it, just two examples: Jeremiah the prophet, according to chapter twenty six, verse seven to eleven. In Jeremiah, he was beaten for his ministry. But then you fast forward the very last prophet, who is John the Baptist. He was beheaded for speaking the truth boldly. So they're the prophets that God sent. And you also have to notice, the vineyard owner would have been completely justified in getting rid of the tenants initially, because he sent one servant. Hey, hey, you need to give an account of yourselves, you know, give some of the fruit to the father, to the vineyard owner. What did they do? But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The vineyard owner could have fired them all immediately, gotten rid of them. But instead, he was very patient with them. He sent them another servant. Three servants in total right there. Time and time again, they beated them, treated them shamefully, as the text says, sent them away empty-handed. But then, verse 13. When the tenants, oh sorry, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. This one's probably pretty obvious. Who is this son right here? It's Jesus. He is the beloved Son of the Father. Maybe, just maybe, the one who is closest to me, the one who has the closest resemblance of authority of mine, who has my very authority upon him, who has my name upon him, maybe, just maybe, they will respect him. They will listen to him. But no. Verse 14 and 15. The tenants saw him. They talked the matter over. This is the error. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, zoom out a little bit. Even this parable right here is about the authority of God, the authority of Christ. And you might be thinking, where do you you see that? Where's the authority component here? Because when I read this, it looks like to me that the, the tenants and the farmers, that they're the ones in control. It seems like they're the ones who have the power. They're the ones, after all, who got rid of all the servants who even killed the vineyard's own son. It seems like they're the ones in control. Where's the authority of Christ of the Father? Well, that's precisely where verses 16 and 17 come into play, particularly verse 17. It's that that familiar phrase, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That verse right there, which is quoted, from Psalm 118, verse 22. That's quoted at, at least in Romans chapter 9 as well. And I believe it's in 1 Peter as well. So it's a very familiar verse. It's mentioned several times in the New Testament, so it's significance for you and I. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you don't get that immediately, I had to think through that a little bit, but it, it is the gospel in a nutshell because Jesus is the stone of God. But though he was rejected, though he was tossed aside, though he was brought out of, the, of the, the city of Jerusalem, tossed aside like garbage, even broken apart as he was beaten, what happened? Through his resurrection, he became the cornerstone. If you looked at it in the moment, it would have seemed like Jesus was weak, he was powerless, he was helpless, he was tossed aside, he was useless. He's irrelevant. But through the resurrection... The Father established him as the head of all things, as Colossians chapter 1 talks about. He is the the supreme authority over all creation, over the church, over everything. And now, today, the entire universe is upheld by his authority and his power. The stone that was rejected now is the cornerstone. Everything is built upon Christ and relies upon Christ. That is the gospel, even there in a nutshell, just a little foretaste of it. Because though Jesus was the one who was murdered, he was the one who was tossed aside so that you and I wouldn't have to face the wrath of the Father. So that you and I could be free from that punishment that we deserve. But to receive that gift, to receive that life, to receive that pardon, what must happen? You must humbly ask him, and you must humbly submit to his authority. That's how you you become a Christian. Humbly ask him, humbly ask God, and also humbly submit to his authority. Lord, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm confused, I'm a sinner. I need you, please save me. Humbly ask him, but also humbly submit to him. Lord, my life is yours. I've been living for myself, I've been living for my job, I've been living for my spouse, my kids, whatever it might be. Help me to live for you alone, supremely. Every single day of my life. Submit to his authority. And if you do that, the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And the goal of all of this, verse 13. I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Our proper response to the authority of Christ is to respect him. To follow him, to submit to him humbly. And that leads us to the last thing. Authority that is explained, verses 20 to 26. See if I can speed this one up. The religious leaders were not done. The more words of truth that Jesus speaks, every single word he speaks, the religious leaders get more angry, more angry, more angry. Their, their wrath just fumes and burns against him. So their plan is to destroy him to dispose of him, to get rid of him, as Jesus himself just described in the previous few verses. You see in the text, keeping a close watch on him, they sent some spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Their big plan to take down Jesus becomes clearer and clearer as we get towards the end of this gospel. They send spies and... Take note of what they're doing here. Uh, the religious leaders send spies to bring up a very contentious topic back then and also today, and that is the topic of taxes. And if there's one thing that's similar between the 1st century and the 21st century, it's this. If you do not pay your taxes, you can say sayonara to your life. Okay? It's the same back then, same today. So you can tell yet again, though they are buttering up Jesus in verse 21, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. That is absolutely true. And that you do not show partiality, also true, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's a beautiful thing to say of Christ. But even here, it's important to keep in mind, it's not enough to just know the right things about Jesus. Because, believe it or not, the demons have good theology. The demons know who Jesus is. Because as you read in Luke, or sorry, Mark chapter one, verse 24, that's when Jesus is taking a, a, a demon out of a person. in Mark chapter one, verse 24, the demon talks to Jesus through the person and says, "I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God." Again, good theology. but that means nothing if you don't actually love the truth, if you don't live the truth. So right here. They say the good things, but it's not genuine in their heart. Here it is. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You can tell by the the subtext what they are hoping Jesus Jesus would say here. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar, to that godless leader, that guy who does not pay any homage to the true Yahweh of Israel? Is it right to pay taxes to the godless government, the wretched government? They were hoping. Jesus would say something like, no, don't pay taxes to them, which, aka, is rebel against the government. And if Jesus says that, then they're immediately going to report him to Caesar, to everybody in charge, so that Jesus can then be gotten rid of. What does Jesus do? He is the all-wise teacher and master. He saw through their duplicity, some other versions say, he perceived their craftiness. He detected their trickery. And Jesus takes this opportunity to explain the issue of authority to them. And and let me just be frank and just super clear. I do not have enough time to talk about the big full picture of what the Christian's perspective is on relating to the government. That is a whole sermon, multiple sermons, in and of itself, I'm only scratching the surface, literally scratching the surface as you'll see. I mean, if you have questions, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. But Jesus is saying here, uh, through his kind of f- famous saying, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, what he is saying is yes, the government has some authority over you. And yes, You are called to submit to that government. And what does that mean? It does mean pay your taxes. But the thing I want to focus on is that last phrase in verse 25. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. God's? In other words, if a coin has the image of the ruler of Caesar on it, right? Caesar owns it. Got it. Get back to God what is God's. Here's a question for you again, class. What has the image of God on it? We do. You do. Human beings do. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, right, that little coin, or the, the, maybe it's multiple coins, right? The coin, yeah, give it to Caesar. It's his. Sure. What you owe me is your life. The entirety of your life, your highest allegiance, your greatest affections, all of it is for me. That's what you are to give me. Give to God what is God's. Again, it's an issue about authority. You owe me your life. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he said and said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So church, we end where we began. The king who has come, the king is Jesus. The king who has come is peaceful, He's humble, He's praiseworthy, but he's also the king who's in authority. It's kind of redundant to say, but this, every, the Gospels slowly but surely build a clearer picture of who Jesus is with the resurrection being the final nail, if you will, that reveals to us the splendor of how powerful and mighty he is. Here we get a window into what is the nature of his authority. We see that Jesus teaches with authority. He teaches with all authority. It's binding for all people at all times and all places. We see from the parable of the tenant, the tenants. He exercises his authority in great patience. He's very patient with us. He could vanquish us. He could fire us. He could get rid of us. But instead, he's very patient with us. Second Peter three nine says, "Not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance." We see that he's patient with his authority. But he will execute final judgment one day, eventually. And for you and I today, our proper response to the king is to submit to him, to humbly approach him, to listen to him, to respect him, to give him what he is due, which is our entire lives. And I simply ask you, have you done that? Have you done that? And if you have, if you are a Christian, if you have repented and confessed and and trusted in Christ, are you doing that daily? Is that an attitude that you're cultivating daily? Lord, I'm yours. Lord, your word is true. We sang about the beautiful word. I've never heard that song before, but we sang about it just moments ago. Beautiful words. Lord, your word is beautiful. It is true. It's the authority over my life. Help me submit to your word, regardless of how I think it should sit, what it should say, regardless of how I feel about it. Help me submit to your truth. Is that the attitude you are cultivating every single day? It's what we're called to do. And I encourage you to do it. So let's pray, church. And then we'll close with the doxology. Jesus, you are the King over the universe. You are the King of this world. You are the King of this church. You are the King of our lives. That's true regardless of whether or not we submit to you, whether we acknowledge it, whether we are aware of it. But you are the King in authority over us. And Holy Spirit, today we ask that you will please soften our hearts. Please help us to see and to recognize your authority over us. Please help us to respect you, to revere you as king. And please help us to submit every aspect of our lives to you. Our money, our relationships, our work ethic, everything that we do, help us to submit to you, to honor you, to respect you, to glorify you. Because you deserve it and because you are good. We commit these things to you, not asking for our will, but yours to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand and sing the doctrine?